Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, the official Loganberry Books podcast series. We are a local indie bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Every week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, reveal niche stories about Loganberry, link you to local authors, ask some interesting questions about the literary world, and check in with our friendly bookstar cat, Otis. Join our listener support program, where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to help keep this podcast going. Go to our website, loganberrybooks.com, and follow our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts, all at Loganberry Books, to stay up to date and to find out how to best support us during these ever-shifting times. Thank you for listening, and enjoy. In today's Local Voices Intellect and Inspiration episode of Lines from Loganberry, Local Voices manager, Maisha Hedden, hosts authors Ken Schneck and Robert Fiesler for a special edition of the series honoring Pride Month, where Ken interviews Robert about his new book, Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation. Both of the participants' books can be purchased at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links in the description below. Today we have another installation of our intellect and inspiration series, and this one is aligned with Pride Month here in June. So for the intellect and inspiration series, we find a local person who is bringing to bear um, their intellectual heft, but also bringing a certain level of inspiration um, to their writing. And for this edition, our person of intellect and inspiration is Ken Schneck. He is a longtime friend of Loganberry Books. Ken Schneck is an author, radio host, and professor at Baldwin Wallace University, where he teaches courses on anti-racism, ethical leadership, and creating community-based change. He is the author of LGBTQ Cleveland, LGBTQ Columbus, and LGBTQ Cincinnati. He goes straight down the diagonal. Uh, However, his book, which is my most favorite, is seriously, what am I doing here? And I highly recommend everybody get it. It's um, an incredibly funny memoir. So Ken most recently founded The Buckeye Flame. It is a new online magazine for LGBTQ Ohioans. And that one is not just Cleveland-based it is going to address LGBTQ issues throughout the entire state. It's an incredibly ambitious project. Ken is here to interview Robert Feisler. And with that, Ken, come on in. Thank you so much for having me, Logan Berry audience. That Logan Berry wall of books is one of my absolute favorite spots in Cleveland. So I am thrilled to be here and thrilled to be back interviewing just incredible people doing incredible things. And I will introduce one to you right now. Robert W. Fiesler is an author and a journalist and so much more. His essays and feature stories have been nominated for the Pushcart Prize and recognized in roundups of best nonfiction by The Atlantic. 
He writes about marginalized groups and overlooked people who make the world better for themselves. He was the winner of the 2020 Columbia Journalism School First Decade Award, the 2019 National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association Journalist of the Year, a Linton Fellowship in Book Writing, and a Pulitzer Traveling Fellowship. I hold in my hands his book, Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs fire and the rise of gay liberation, which has racked up basically all of the awards. And now he is here with us. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Keep going, I wanna meet that guy. I, that was an amazing introduction, wow. Happy to be here, this is great. I'm thrilled to chat with you. So many questions, are you ready to get started? Yeah, let's, let's dive in. So growing up in Naperville, Illinois, was, was writing always oh the dream? Oh my gosh, I, I'm surprised that you know that. Um, no, Naperville was an um, evangelical conservative suburb, uh, um, and I was the product of two middle-class parents. So I was like a young creative kid who probably at age five or so, um, I, I went to, I, I had this thing where I, I went to my first grade class and they did something really cool that day. They sat us all down, they had us all, like all the classes together and they said, you all have, the, we have a very important breaking news announcement that you all have to hear. Willy Wonka has released five golden tickets. And of course all the kids screamed. Like we were just, we couldn't believe it. And we knew it was pretend, but we'd, it felt like it was true. And then there was this poor kid, Charlie Bucket, and he's never, he can't afford chocolate. And, and then he's never gonna be able to get it. And then he gets a ticket. And it was like, and then he gets to meet Willy Wonka. It was like insane. And so I, I like, I knew I wanted to do something like that where I wanted to create, um, to transport um, uh, readers to a different time and place using writing um, and I was just like a little earnest wide-eyed kid that wanted to do that up until the point where you know you realize you're growing up in evangelical conservative suburb and then you tell all you tell your coaches and you tell your parents that you want to be a writer and then everyone will tell you oh <laughs> Thank you. So that's great. What? So that's your backup plan. So how are you going to get a manage, middle management engineering job or something like that? And um, that was my sort of that was my life up until from, from that point up until college when I left and I was able to. I, I only came out of the closet in college, like my junior year, and I was able to like be like, screw you, mom and dad, I'm writing poetry, and like I became like. <laughs> And I sort of embraced myself and became a writer again. But um, so there was kind of a very large gap in the middle where I was told I was sort of inadequate, insufficient, unsatisfactory in all my answers to my life questions. Um, I wasn't Jesus-y enough. I wasn't good enough at sports. I wasn't enthusiastic, um, teachers would complain about. And that's because I was totally suffocated. <laughs> and so I... Um, I eventually left my hometown, and that's when I sort of was able to be the person I wanted to be when I was five or six. Uh, I love talking to people about that coming out process as a writer. You know, the coming out process is gay. It's Pride Month. Let's all do that. But as a yeah. writer, did you have that one moment where you realized, ah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing? Um, yeah, but it, was, it came as a reader, weirdly enough. So I went to, I was in San Francisco once in my life and I was with my best friend. We weren't even old enough to get into bars yet. And I wasn't out of the closet. So I went by the notion because um, I was still on that verge, that cusp where I don't know if I'm ready. And I went into City Lights 
bookstore, um, which I honestly didn't even know that much about the beats at that point or the lineage of that famous bookstore in San Francisco. And I went to the poetry section and I found a book it almost called to me called Meditations in an Emergency. It was written by a gay poet named Frank O'Hara, who had gone, it turns out, to the, the place where I was going to college, University of Michigan. And I read, it felt like one of those moments where a voice like hand reaches out of the book and grabs you and pulls you through time. And I realized I wanted to be like Frank O'Hara. That was the moment, I think that was, that was the moment where I was just like, he did that. What he just did for me, I'd love to do for anyone else. Um, maybe with poetry, maybe with some other form of writing. But that was, that was what really solidified it, I guess, on like a soul level for me that um, this is the most meaningful thing to do with a life. This is the way where even after I die, um, in the way that Shakespeare is able to talk to living people, in the way that Dante is able to talk to living people, this is a way that your work takes on a life separate from you. In some way, it is more resilient and stronger than you. And if you're lucky, um, it will live on. Yeah. So that's sort of what moved me that much. And I, I, I didn't know that Frank O'Hara died in the way that, that he died at Fire Island. I knew nothing about his sad story. Um, but that was kind of, that's, I guess that's my little story about that. Well, that, that narrative thread of, of bringing people to life is one that you see all throughout Tinderbox, right? It's this unbelievable tragedy that maybe some people know about and, and there's not a ton of information out there about the upstairs fire, but maybe some information. What, when you went into this project, what story were you specifically, Robert, trying to tell? Because you, you have such a great distinctive voice. So what were you looking to bring to the mix? So I was looking to unbury this lost history. That was one aspect of it. There was this, like I had the, my reportorial spidey sense was tingling that I'm like, there's, a, there's an amazing cavern of a story here that's unplumbed that I'm going to want to delve into. And I think I'll be able to, from there, unspool a, a very fascinating narrative about um, an uh, unjustly unknown event. There was that, but then there was also this whole notion that, and I don't know why, but I wanted to meet gay people from that mm -hmm. era. I wanted to know what, the, what it was like, what they went through, um, what their experience of being themselves on a, um, you know, a very quotidian basis would have been like? What was it like to leave your apartment and walk into a job? And could you be out at your job? Or, and the answer is probably not. But was there one coworker who sort of knew? I was, I'm fascinated by the, the minutia of all those questions. And I'm also, I wanted to know what sacrifices did they make to live their authentic selves? Um, and I, I, I had a sense that, and I would be sure that I would be shocked the degree to which, um, they had to make shift to live um, without undue strain. And yet um, when, I, I, when I eventually like, got the guts up and I started researching um, in New Orleans this book and when I started to meet my first survivors or family members or friends of the victims of the upstairs lounge fire, I was also, I don't know why this surprised me, but I, they weren't all bummers. Like I was asking them to talk to the, in, these individuals to talk about the worst thing that had ever happened to them. Um, the an event that led to the death of their friends or family members, and in sort of, in, in a sense, cleaved their lives in two. And when I spoke to them, 
Um, and this will probably not be a surprise to you because we know we all know queer folk in this way, but these are, um, um, I, I laughed a lot. They're great storytellers. These are gay folk from New Orleans who's lived here and they've lived not just through the trauma of the upstairs lounge fire, but through the AIDS crisis, through, um, through uh, Southern biases against queer folk, et cetera. These are folk who've developed quite a powerful repertoire of humorous phrases and witticisms that they use to repel things that would destroy another human being. Um, and so I was able to kind of process this event, um, I felt on, a on several very human levels by meeting these fascinating um, and really, and really uh, multifaceted, complicated Southern queer gentlemen and women, I felt. Oh, and they, I should mention the event. Um, so they, I'll, I'll, get, I'll give a little question. Preview. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we can set the stage for people. So if sure. people are listening in saying, what are they even talking about, right? right. This, I've never heard of this fire. We're talking right. about 1973, New Orleans, this horrific fire that, that claimed the lives of, of 32 uh, individuals who were in this uh, very specific gay bar, and I do want to talk about kind of the vibe of sure. the vibe of the upstairs lounge. Um, but what I was really struck by was that to understand, you know, before we're able to understand what happened, this horrific fire, you do so well to highlight that we need to understand New Orleans at this time in 1973, just a few years after Stonewall. You wrote, quote, few American cities with sizable gay populations could escape the fervor set off by Stonewall, but New Orleans managed to do so. Many New Orleanians hadn't even heard of the Stonewall Inn, or if they had questioned the relevance of pride to lives they knew and enjoyed. This was a very specific time in a very mm -hmm. specific city, Absolutely. right? I mean, New Orleans had long nurtured its own unique, grand, uh, Southern Creole type tradition of allowing for um, a, a semi-closeted uh, you know, niche of its society to exist only in so much as that niche never declared itself to be anything other than eccentric or charming or a bachelor at a party, et cetera. So there was this tradition that had, that had existed for decades, if not centuries there, that in some ways conflicted with the wanton openness of what we would know as uh, the sexual liberation of the queer rights movement. Individuals coming out saying, I sleep with men, or, you know, like, I, you know, I, I'm, I was born, a, you know, one gender, but I'm, I'm a different gender, or I'm both genders, or something like that. That, in, in New Orleans society, um, the verbalization of it, uh, of what was then uh, only safe because it was unspeakable would provoke violent reprisals and um, and controversy. So yeah, it was it was even in 1973 New Orleans. You're getting to a very unique place where it, there is a it is a gay populous city estimated at a population of estimated about 60,000 people in a town of 600,000. So a very very large queer subset of the population. And, and many of those individuals had come from other uh, other. Uh, little southern towns or something like that, they'd run away to New Orleans. That was their dream growing up, to be able to start new chapters, new phases of their life. Sometimes when they got to New Orleans, in order to embrace this semi-closeted world, they'd take on pseudonyms, or they'd change or hack off different versions of their name to provide some modicum of, of plausible deni deniability. But they were certainly not political. They were not politicized. This was not a city that had marches 
for, uh, for gays and lesbians demanding their rights from the mayor, things like that. Or, and certain, you know, no press conferences, no, no well-known public gay leaders in town. Um, certainly no moving, you know, Harvey Milk style speeches on any street corner. Um, this was a place where gay folk, uh, most of whom were working class, um, and had, you know, lives and livelihoods to lose if they were outed um, publicly or in the crime blotter of the newspaper, which would publish their name if they were arrested and ruined their lives. Um, they, these were individuals uh, who uh, liked to raise a glass with one another um, and liked to, as they would yes. say in New Orleans, pass a good time. Um, but, but, but nothing more than that. And, and there was certainly no atmosphere of, uh, of rage or, uh, or, or political outcry at that point. So you, have, so you have New Orleans, which is occupying this very specific space. And then as a subset of that, you write about how the upstairs lounge itself occupied a, a specific vibe in New Orleans. Uh, you wrote in the book, quote, the anger that had ignited the Stonewall Inn differed markedly from the camaraderies of the upstairs lounge, whose patrons were more content and wished to have fun in their out of the way refuge until that refuge was obliterated. Before we talk sure. about the upstairs lounge, because I felt like mm -hmm. I walked into the upstairs lounge. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. I spent, I spent months, if not years, trying to figure out and try to imagine my way into every nook and cranny into that of that fascinating community gathering space that, um, that served a lot of different roles in the gay community then. So it was a working class gay bar, as I said, so you would have um, lawn, short, lawn, you know, longshoremen, you would have steel workers, you would have off-duty uh, members of the police department who were closeted queer at different times. Um, you would have individuals who were um, closeted priests and brothers of religious institutions. I mean, you would have everyone, every, pretty much every facet of an individual, of a career that had to turn up somewhere on a Monday morning. Those were individuals who'd be at the upstairs, uh, at the upstairs lounge. Um, you would also have uniquely for New Orleans society and actually in, uniquely for gay society of the, of the 1970s in many cities, you would have black and white gay folk commingling together which was radical, especially for New Orleans in an era where there were, these are then offensive terms, but then street parlance for racial term, racial, the racial terminology among gay folk is that there was snow and dinge. Snow were white folk, dinge were black folk. Um, and they were in New Orleans especially, they were um, separated and relegated to different gay bars, usually especially in Tony gay bars on Bourbon Street, like Cafe Lafitte in Exile. Um, but the upstairs lounge, not so. That was a place where black gay patrons could come in and were encouraged, right, encouraged to date white patrons. So this again sets them, even though you're having a working class bar, like almost like I pictured it at first, like a gay cheers, you have this unique, very progressive, what was then would have then be considered very radical, social policy based on conviviality though, not on politics, based on, I like Reggie, you know, he's black, but he comes to my bar. Of course he dates other people who come to my bar. It's that, it's that kind of thing. Also the upstairs lounge was a place where women could drink, which was, um, many gay bars would not permit women to drink because they were trying to call gays and lesbians from each other yeah. um, at various points. And also, um, believe it or not, um, 
the trans community and the drag community in New Orleans uh, were, had a very hard time in the early 1970s. Um, and there's this weird association with drag and Mardi Gras in New Orleans. So of course, there was no knowledge of gender dysphoria or the notion of an individual who identifies from a gender separate than the one they're born. So well, what was unique about the Upstairs Lounge though is there was a, a small uh, regular group of trans patrons. And then there, all, there was also, and they, they were generally, these were performers, they were called. These were individuals, trailblazers, exploring various forms of female personae. This is before the word transgender, you know, got the, the hyphen taken away from it. Um, and they would, perf uh, they would perform in charity drag shows in the second room. And then if that wasn't enough, the Upstairs Lounge also hosted at various points a radical gay-affirming Christian church yeah. that would have complete with communion there. Um, and that's not, that's not when, you know, like David Stewart Gary, they called him Piano, gay, piano, piano Dave, wasn't like sitting down at the white baby crayon piano, hammering out some show tunes that everyone's singing to. So um, I tried, in order to kind of, work my way into every one of those corners. I, you wouldn't even imagine the number of people I had to talk to in New Orleans. But as it turns out, if you ply people with a few drinks, everyone wants to talk about their old bar adventures. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that then leads to the fire. Um, mm. and, and we have to talk about the fire. You describe the fire in, and, and I hope this comes out okay, you describe it in exquisite but excruciating mm -hmm. detail. Uh, and I, I would say a couple things. First of all, I, I do feel like you owe me a drink oh. uh, because it was mm -hmm. a lot, right? But, but, but that's also a measure of your talent because I felt like, okay, I'm invested in these, in these people who you have described, um, and then you describe the fire in a way that, that is just so vivid and so real. From a, even just from a writerly self-care perspective, how do you write those words and not... I mean, for lack of a better word, be consumed, or or were you consumed? You know, how how do you keep a sense of self when you are writing in such detail about this oh, devastating? Um, I didn't. I was a new writer. I didn't know how to manage it or compartmentalize it. So it took me about three months to write the fire scene, and I had to imagine my way into every corner of this burning bar that I'd come to love. And I'd had to um, I had to place all the characters there in j journalism you call nonfiction and historical figures characters. But I had to place them all into a place that I uh, that that I cared about. And then I had to let the terrible thing that was bound to happen because I wasn't writing fiction. I couldn't let people out of the room happen there. And then I had to let it happen to people um, whose lives I discovered things about, and it was terrible. And eventually I wanted, I, I, I thought about like, if there was a moment to quit a book, it would have been the moment where I built, I built up all this tension in myself to get to the fire scene on what happened on the night of June 24th, 1973, um, which was the final Sunday of what was then called around the country Pride Month. Nobody in New Orleans knew that though. On a very hopping night, right? at the upstairs lounge, hopping because that was the drink special night. Again, you gotta get into working class mentality. Rich gay folk don't care about drink specials, but at the upstairs lounge, this was the beer bus night. You know, $1 for two hours of unlimited draft beer, plus a returnable 50, 50 cent deposit for the pitcher. This is New Orleans in the 70s. People are partying. They have to, had to walk up a second, you know, it's a second story bar, so they had to walk up a winding set of stairs 
uh, to get there. And they'd been up there for several hours. Um, and I had to imagine my way into that night. The horror, the randomness and senselessness of what happened that night, where a drunken individual stumbles into the bar, um, gets in a fight, is clocked, you know, knocked to the ground. And as he's being pulled up to be ejected from the bar, he screams, I'm going to burn you all out. And then minutes later, the fire starts in the front staircase that had served as the lone entrance and exit for this very popular blue collar bar. Um, and pandemonium and panic ensues amongst a group of people that up to that moment had been having the most fun they'd probably had in that, uh, um, that month. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, I cried a lot when I wrote it. It took me three when months I, to- When I read it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I threw up writing it uh, a couple different times. My husband eventually told me not to talk to him about it anymore because bless him, he'd put up with enough from me. And this, so I eventually, um, I would talk to other upstairs lounge colleagues, people who'd written about this book or had taken an interest in the story or other queer historians from New Orleans. Yeah. Or, and eventually I got a grief counselor and I, this, and I had, who, 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 he didn't diagnose me with anything, but, but agreed that I had um, ancillary trauma. I mean, I, I was taking on imaginary, the trauma of, of, of individuals I was writing about and sort of uh, helped me work through what I was feeling while I was writing it. Because I didn't, what happened to these individuals was so terrible when fire sweeps into a gay bar in a span of a span of minutes and you're counting the seconds and the choices between between what makes life and death uh based on what happens in really a three minute span um that's that's the most critical um i uh you you sort of as a writer um agree to take on that weight and when you're writing it um, and something bad happens some, to someone who you feel like you fully fleshed out as a historical individual, even gotten to know, maybe started to love, you, f you feel like you're doing it to them. Yeah. And, um, it, you, and I started to wonder, is something the matter with me? <laughs> do, why do I have to, why am I zooming in on everything? Why, am I, why other authors maybe may have blurred it, you know, or, and then the fire struck them all. And then next scene is the scene outside or something like that. I thought, because historically this event was um, so denigrated, um, where, and it was left off the map of not just American history, but LGBTQ plus history. I thought almost in indignation, I need to walk people through every step of this, of the tragedy itself the tragic minutes so that people understand the momentousness of what happened and the fact that everything that happened in that bar was consequential. Yeah. Um, and I wanted it to feel consequential um, emotionally, like on a per and historically. So that was sort of why I, I did what I did. I never read the fire scene when I'm asked to give readings of the books. I feel like that's something people should experience on their own if they want to, if they choose to. Um, but I've, I've, I've never done a recitation. Yeah. I, I would say that never have my cats felt so useless than when I needed them to comfort me while I was reading the fire scene. Uh, I, I, I have never longed for a dog as oh much as gosh. I wanted a dog in that moment. Come like, come on guys, comfort me. They had nothing. Well, look, there, there's so many twists and turns and, and 
And post-fire, uh, everyone needs to check out. I, there's one in particular plot development that I had a moment of like, no, I didn't see that coming with a reverend who maybe isn't a reverend. Uh, and when when people get to page 253, Robert, and, and they close the book and they go about their lives, what do you want with regards to legacy? What do you want people knowing uh, about the the upstairs lounge and, and the fire and the after effects? Know that it happened, first of all, um, and that it was consequential. Um, if possible, I'd like them to walk away being able to speak the names of one or several of the victims of the fire, because those names were not spoken for decades, even in New Orleans. And these individuals who were, in a sense, never asked to be historical figures, all they did was walk into their favorite bar on a given night. I would like people to understand um, the violence of the institutional closet as it existed in, in, the, in the late 20th century in America, um, and how it was an institution that forced an entire segment of otherwise law-abiding society live in a constant state of anxiety and danger, and that the institutional closet itself, as it existed in New Orleans, was an institution of great corruption and great violence. You see the violence and what happened to the upstairs lounge victims and also in the way that the dead were disrespected by the city. So I would like, I'd like people to see, um, to look in the face um, what happens when you ask a segment of society to not be so flaming to go live their queer lives in the corner. This is what happens if in that instance when someone's living in the corner, um, where a moment of calamity, of serious emergency strikes, and then all the other ordinary institutions, secular and religious, are not available to protect that citizen. That's something I want people to think about. And then I guess on a personal level, I want to think, I, I'd like people to think about um, the nature of tragedy mm -hmm. um, and, how you, and how you approach it in your own life and how you understand it and make meaning from it. I think you can learn, I, I've tried, uh, I've followed the stories of a lot of the upstairs lounge survivors and I've seen how they have tried, have processed, um, some of them for, for better and some of them for worse and I'm not blaming them from it. They're, I understand that this is, this is a kind of trauma that could live on um, in a human soul um, up to your last day. Um, however, I've seen, um, I, I've seen what happens when individuals um, look their own personal tragedy in their life in the face. I've seen it in, in a very personal way. I've interviewed some of the upstairs lounge survivors like 10 to, to 12 times in some instances, one hour each. I've really gotten to know them. Some of them are, I, you know, after the book was over, I can say they are my friends now. Um, even though in the, because I'm a reporter, in the context of when I'm researching the book, there's a, there is a, a professional def, delineation of the relationship. Um, but um, tragedy strikes us all. It is utterly senseless. It's often unjust. Um, in some cases, it's bigoted. And um, a when a life is tested like that, um, many things can result. And I, I think of one of the most awe-inspiring, probably is the best word I can think of, results of the upstairs lounge fire that I, that I know was the upstairs lounge survivor, Stuart Butler, who survived the upstairs lounge tragedy with his lover, Alfred Doolittle. He'd walked down the front staircase only minutes before the fire began, um, just by chance. Um, Stuart channeled his grief and rage about the injustices of what happened at the upstairs lounge and its aftermath into a life of activism where he fought 
offer LGBT plus protections in New Orleans for 10 years of what was a very lonely battle, trying to secure a local ordinance that would, um, a, a local non-discrimination ordinance uh, protecting uh, gays and lesbians and bisexuals in the city. And he eventually secured it in 1991. Then Stewart wasn't done. He was a man that lived by higher principle. And he then befriended um, a transgender activist by, by the name of Courtney Sharp, and then went to battle with the city again for another seven years to secure protections for transgender citizens in New Orleans. Um, and won. And then he wasn't even over then. Then he, he worked with Courtney to fight PFLAG, national, uh, na the National PFLAG or Organization. I think it's like, do you know the, the acronym? I always get wrong. Oh yeah, it, was, it used to be Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. It's now become much more inclusive, but that's what they started out as. Yeah, so PFLAG was the first organization to include uh, transgender rights in its mission statement. And that was because an upstairs lounge survivor named Stuart Butler, working with his protege, Courtney Sharp, they were both New Orleanians, fought national PFLAG to include it in 1998. So this is a model for a guy that transformed tragedy in his life. Um, and I, when I moved to New Orleans, because I, so, uh, I was so overtaken by this story, I actually still think about it every day. I've learned how to process it, though, in a different way where I don't just see the tragedy and the sadness. But I, I met Stuart, and actually we ended up um, part of the same friend circle. Um, and I was actually, you know, I, the last time I saw him, because Stuart passed away in March, um, uh, I remember the last time I saw him and I actually he would send out a Valentine's Day letter every year and I, I got his last I, I can't bring myself to read his last Valentine's Day letter because that was a, I, like yeah. it was like his equivalent of a Christmas letter but um he thanked me for writing the book and I just I and I thanked him for living his life um and I'm happy to say um that though Stuart died he was in his 90s um and he uh because of his great contributions, um, several historians in New Orleans now are writing a biography of his life. Um, but I think, so anyway, that, that was a long-winded answer to your question of what I want people to take away from this. But I, I do want people to, to consider how this relates to tr senseless tragedies that can strike anyone, because they certainly do strike us all, and that's part of the human existence. And the question then is, what do you do with your rage what do you do with your indignation? What do you do with your pain and your fury? Last question from my end. Uh, tell our listeners what you have coming up that you're excited about. Oh, wow. About. Um, you mean like just in my career or like what? Sure. I mean, I guess it's open-ended, but yes. What, what, what can we look forward to reading more I'm of I'm writing my you? second book. I got the contracts from Penguin Random House imprint. Actually, I'm really excited. It's, a, it's another gay history, deeper in the queer past where I'm going to unpack, in essence, the precursor to Anita Bryant in Florida, who was, and I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but a Democratic state populist, kind of hillbilly, named Charlie Johns, who was a state senator who ran for nine years in the late 50s to early 60s, a, um, an investigation committee that at first went after Black activists, accusing them to be communists. And then when that didn't work, because the, because the NAACP's legal defense fund was so uh, was the tops. Um, they went after a, a more viable candidate who they could de declare un-American, and they went after closeted queer teachers um, and outed them uh, by the hundreds. Wow. Um, and it's, so it's called, that was called uh, 
the Johns Committee. And I'll be writing about um, the, um, what happened in Florida of during that period of time that then inspired Anita Bryant, who was like the, the, one of the first publicly um, known national anti-homosexual spokespersons uh, to begin her camp campaign, which eventually failed in the 19, uh, late 1970s, uh, but birthed social conservatism. Yeah. So I wanna get to the heart of where she, she got her ideas from, and it all happens in, that, in a state called Florida, uh, which is so funny to, which is so funny to, I mean, the thing about writing about New Orleans is a lot of people have New Orleans pride. So there's this whole thing about like that, that when I initially wrote Tinderbox, like people weren't sure about whether that they're going to share a, st a story about New Orleans that might not reflect well in the city. I don't experience that with Florida at all. <laughs> I feel like everybody hates Florida, even people who live there. Um, <laughs> and so it's been really interesting to research it from a, from a queer perspective. Amazing. Well, everybody listening needs to stroll on over to www.rwfiesler.com. That's R-W-F-I-E-S-E-L-E-R.com. And you can learn all about the amazing things that Robert is doing. And of course, pick up a copy of Tinderbox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. And I feel pretty comfortable with uh, Logan Berry endorsing getting such a book from your independent booksellers in your community. Robert, it, it, it is an extraordinary book and, and you really brought me there. And I can think of no better creation uh, than to put me right in that scene and feel like I was there and I was part of a community that I didn't know and I felt their pain and I felt parts of their joy, um, but I also felt their determination to make things better. And I, I'm so thankful for the words that you put on the page. Thank you. And thank you, Robert, so much for joining us. Um, but before you go, um, oh, I should mention, Robert's book will be available, is available rather, on Loganberry Books website. So if you go to our online store, you'll be able to buy Robert's books from Loganberry and support your local independent bookstore. So Robert, before you go, we have our Loganberry questions that we ask of all of the authors who visit us. Go, I love these sorts of things. Our first question is, what three people would you invite to a dinner party? They can be living or dead. It just has to be your most favorite, most memorable dinner party ever. There has to be like the dinner party to end all dinner parties. Okay. Um, I would have at my dinner party, Oscar Wilde. Nice. Truman Capote. Oh, wow. And my three-year-old niece and goddaughter, Riley. Love it. <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh my I God, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, I think that's what I would do. <laughs> they would, the repartee would be killer. Nuts. And then they wouldn't know what to do with this little kid. They would be off balance too. I love it. Okay, yeah. our next Loganberry question is, could you describe for us your writing space? When it's time to write your thousand words for the day, where do you go? Okay, so I write in multiple places in New Orleans in the French Quarter. There are several I go to. Um, I, I sort of have a rhythm to it. So I will go to, there's an espresso shop where Jacob makes the nice espresso place called French Truck on Charter Street. That's actually 
steps away from the historic upstairs lounge location and the monument. So, so on some days I'll go pay my respects at the monument. Then I walk further down Charter Street in the French Quarter um, to a place called the Historic New Orleans Collection Reading Room. It's a converted police station that they turned into a historic archive. And what my what the world would be if they made more police stations into historic archives. Um, but so it's, it's, um, it's absolutely beautiful. I walk up a long staircase that's got these kind of gold railings or sometimes I get into, because I like to make pretend I'm rich, some days I'll get into the elevator and go up this really extravagant elevator, one floor that's got like, again, golden little handlebars. Not like I even live that way, but like so, and then I, um, and then I walk into this reading room and I greet the archivists and I then I sit down in my spot where the internet's very fast and I'll do my work probably about, three hours worth of stuff, then I'll go take a walk through the French Quarter, and then I'll do three, out, three more hours worth of work. Um, and that's on the days that they're open. So they're open Monday, uh, sorry, they're open Tuesday through Saturday. And I always screw up Monday. I'll show up like ready to walk in the archive. I'm like a nutty professor. They laugh at me. <laughs> they're closed. And they know, they, know I'm, they know I'm gonna screw this up. We've been through this like the whole time. But so that, that's the place that I make my office space. And they allow, me, I, I don't pay them a dime. They just, they allow me to go there. And they, I mean, they, they do have my book. I guess they know about me a little bit. But like beyond that, I think I'm just an eccentric that works there who doesn't cause trouble and they like me. So that's my special space where I go there, I'm in the pocket. And that's, that's a good place for when the train of inspiration strikes. I'll have had the espresso. I'll be there. The, it's not a police station anymore. They've turned something like a repressive force into a creative uh, academic space. And then I'll just go. That's, that's the spot. I agree with you that it does sound like a little writing heaven to be in uh, a converted. Well, actually being in the archives is always a little heaven. I mean, mm. I think everybody who writes loves being in the archives. Yes. Our last question what are your highs and what are your lows? What are those like snippets of life that always pick you up? And what are those ones that have a tendency to, um, sure. to drag you down? Okay. Yeah. So on a daily basis, I'll go through my highs. It's very simple. I live in a very, I live in a beautiful city where I walk outside and it's like a movie set. Yeah, it is. So, um, I, I have a Cairn Terrier. I have a dog. So a daily high in my life is when I wake up, the first thing I do is I walk this dog for about 40 minutes, usually to the Mississippi River. Um, and the river at various times of year can be high or low. It has unique relationship. Mark Twain had it right. Mark, Mississippi River has a character, is a character in its own right. And there's a wonderful thing you could do each day, which I do every morning, is you can give your problems to the river. Um, and that's something that's almost spiritual. I like that I like to do. And then I'll walk back to my, my, you know, my, th I, this wonderful half a shotgun house that I have with my husband and usually breakfast will be ready. Um, and that's a lovely thing. It's, I don't know if you've ever nurtured a beautiful domesticity. Um, but like, it's, 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 gorgeous. Um, and that's something I love, I love about, um, on a daily basis. A low um, 
will almost always be me logging on social media and or uh, and it will be uh, and and having the outside world attack my life in new orleans whatever came here and is going to invade the place where i live which is like a, a you know a, a foreign country in u.s soil and that'll attack me or um i'll admit or uh, if i log on and i see something that because social media is all about trying to provoke insecurity in yourself you're either not happy with the number of likes some dumb thing you posted got you're like yeah. why doesn't everyone love me or you see like a close friend or colleague of yours got something right and you start playing the compare game and that's what that's what gets me low is i'm because i think social media encourages the compare game and it see it shuts off the gratitude that i was feeling two seconds before when I got home with my dog and my husband's breakfast is ready. And it's one of those, you know, our house, for, you know, Crosby stills like, I'll light the fire. You place the flowers in the vase that you bought mm -hmm. today. And so then I'll sh shut off Twitter and my day will get better again. <laughs> so that's what brings me low consistently though, is I just can't take, I don't know how to use that yet. And I think a lot of us are trying to figure out how to use these things in a way that, it's um, it's the part of the internet that brings us closer together, and not the part of the internet, or the, not the part of our own lizard brain psychology that that forces us to compare or um, or attack or suspect or judge. I think a lot of us can relate to your um, your highs and lows. I know for me, whenever I take a social media holiday for two or three days, I'm always happier. I don't know why I keep going back, but I do button for punishment <laughs> and for you Ken I think you know Robert's got a dog I've got a dog what are you doing with these cats man I don't even <laughs> well um Robert I want to thank lovely though <laughs> they, run house. they run the house you know what I mean it's their place it is I'm just living here and feeding them yeah just paying rent okay um Robert I am so glad that we uh, that we've had you to come and to share with us in Ohio. Um, it's an amazing book, and we all like look forward to the rest of the work that you're going to do around these topics because it's important that we don't forget history and continue to advance it so that we don't repeat it. Kinschnack, it is always a pleasure and Loganberry is always grateful you are um you are a gem um and a lodestar in our community we love you so much <laughs> what a All wonderful right. what a wonderful interview thank you so much guys this was ken snack teamwork teamwork <laughs> thank you Loganberry books is open to the public tuesday through saturday 10 a.m to 6 p.m you can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links to the books discussed in this episode in the description. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash loganberrybooks, loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks, or on Libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program, where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to help keep this podcast going. Again, all of these options will be linked in the description below. 
This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Margie Adams. Be sure to tune in next week for more bookish content, and thanks for listening.